It is now my pleasure to introduce the opening keynote for this morning, Ms. Loretta Ross. Like the work we are doing with restorative justice, her work focuses on social justice issues and transformational social change. So we are glad to be able to hear her speak this morning. Loretta Ross is an expert on women's issues, racism, and human rights, and she is a nationally recognized women's rights and human rights leader. She was a co-founder of the Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. She was the founder of the National Center for Human Rights Education, and she was also the founder of the Women of Color Program for the National Organization for Women. She has led multiple She has led multiple movements and marches, including the March of Women's Lives in Washington D.C., the largest protest march in the U.S. history. She has, uh, with more than one million participants, she's served as a director at National Anti-Klan Network, where she has led projects researching hate groups and working against all forms of bigotry with universities, schools, and community groups. She has also led many women of color delegations and international conference of women issues and human rights. Ms. Ross is an author, a member of a Women Media Center, Progressive Women's Voices, and she appears regularly in major media outlets about the issue of our day. Ms. Ross is a model of how to survive and thrive despite the traumas that disproportionately affect low-income women of color. She's a nationally recognized trainer on building human rights movements that includes everyone. She is currently pursuing a Ph.D., in Women's Studies at Emory University in Atlanta. She is a mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. Please join me in welcome Ms. Loretta Rose. Ain't that the most powerful way to be introduced? My God. And it makes me sound so much better than I actually am. How y'all doing? I'm up here to talk, but I have to honestly say, first I have to say, I hate mornings. So I'm not necessarily at my best in the morning. I'm one of those people that believe that the two things that should be done in the morning can both be done in bed. (laughs) Otherwise, days should start at noon. You know what I mean? Hey, that's what I'm talking about. 
So if I don't sound totally awake this morning, it's probably because I'm not. I just, I'm still amazed at that introduction you young people did. That was powerful. And I didn't know I was that good until I heard it through your voices. So anyway, thank you. Um, First, I want to thank Colleen Butler for inviting me. Oh, Colleen. And everyone else who made it possible for a radical like me to be here today. Usually people don't take chances on an unknown like me. I'm kind of like, my mama thought I was famous, but nobody else does. (laughs) And so to be invited here is surely an honor. I'm also going to endeavor, can y'all hear me? Because I'm not holding it. Well, I'm kind of used to having penile-shaped objects, but <laughs> but can you hear me if I just lay it down right here? You're all right with that? And I, you know what my next line was? I was going to keep it clean <laughs> in honor of the young people here. I'm sorry, kids. (laughs) I really, really try. But it ain't possible. I mean, a few years ago, I was at my family reunion. And my family's reunion is kind of like Medea's family reunion, you know. Lots of people, us old-ass women sitting at the table talking about everybody. And so a couple of the young men in my family kept walking by me with their pants hanging down. You know the sagging pants where you see more shorts than pants? And so finally I got frustrated at them. And I told them, you don't pull those pants up, I'm going to pull them down and see what you're packing. (laughs) Next thing I knew, everybody walking by me was doing this. (laughs) So I'm that kind of old woman. To be honest, I ain't the kind that's going to fall on my knees and pray. I'm just going to pull your pants down. (laughs) So everybody ain't a rocking chair granny. (laughs) My speech today is about building the beloved community through human rights. But I would certainly be remiss not to pay attention to the tragedy of yesterday where another gunman created a mass murder on the Oregon campus, killing nine people and then getting killed himself, wounding seven others. These gun fundamentalists have taken over our country. That's the 294th mass shooting in this country this year. What the hell is going on? But I'm not even confused about what's going on. I'm confused about why we keep letting it happen. That's what confuses me. It's been reported that the young man had Nazi paraphernalia a Nazi iron cross on his website or his postings or something like that. 
It's also been reported that he hated Christians. This is so normal for us as a society. I'm not surprised that for many of us the world feels far scarier than it ever did in our remembered history. Because you never know what, what next lonely, embittered person is going to get access to a gun and not commit suicide, but commit suicide by mass killings. This is what's going on in our society. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why and what we can do about it. And as you know, as I'm constantly wiping my face, uh, my favorite line is that I'm like a preacher caught in adultery. <laughs> Tried to lie my way out of it. <laughs> but the truth is, I'm just an old woman who has her private summers. And if you're lucky enough and you live long enough, you'll enjoy yours, too. First of all, let me tell a little bit of a personal story. My very first trip to Wisconsin was to Janesville, Wisconsin. And it was because I used to work at a place called the Center for Democratic Renewal, the National Anti-Klan Network. And one of my jobs was to assist people who were leaving the hate movement. Now, obviously, that's a pretty rare job description for a black woman. <laughs> and when I was asked to make this part of my job description, I actually protested. My boss at the time is a man called Reverend C.T. Vivian. And Reverend Vivian was the aide to Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And so when Reverend Vivian told me that he wanted me to take on deprogramming white supremacists as part of my job, I mean, I couldn't curse in front of the Reverend, but I said, no. <laughs> because we barely had enough resources to help the victims of hate violence. Why am I being asked to help the perpetrators? I don't care what kind of epiphanies they've had. But Reverend Vivian, in his wisdom, told me that when you ask people to give up hate, you have to be there for them when they do. And I went, because <laughs> he was right. I did say I was trying to keep it clean. Okay, I'm trying. Because you do have to be there for them. You can't ask people to join you and then walk away when they start coming your way. And so that's how I ended up in Janesville. Because there was this couple, Ken and Carol Peterson, who'd been in the Ku Klux Klan. And they decided to leave the Klan. And they were leaving the Klan with considerable knowledge about the Klan's criminal activities. So we ended up establishing kind of like a underground railroad for them to secretly leave town and 
relocate themselves. And we use a network of churches to do like an informal victim relocation program. Because the FBI, you know, they don't want no parts of it. Actually, the FBI would have worked with us if Kidd had been willing to turn uh, state's evidence on all of his Klan members. But that's a kind of dangerous deal to take. They just want it out. And so I ended up in Janesville in February. <laughs> under a street light with Geraldo Rivera. It does get worse, you know. <laughs> and while Geraldo Rivera was interviewing Ken Peterson, Carol Peterson and I were standing to the side because we weren't on camera, but she didn't have a coat because she had left home so quickly. And I had a coat because I knew where I was going. <laughs> and next thing I knew, I couldn't stand watching her shiver. And so she and I started sharing my coat between us. And then I went, God, if you can't hate the Klan, who can you hate? You know, I mean, why did this black woman from Texas suddenly care about whether this white woman was cold? I mean, you know what I'm saying. But it's inhuman to be able to stand there and watch another human being freeze, no matter what her political perspective had been. And that's when I realized that my boss was right. Reverend C.T. called it that you cannot build a movement sustained on hate. You can only build a movement sustained on love. And that it will come to you in the strangest ways and at the strangest times and despite yourself. Because Carol Peterson probably didn't know that she was going to be part of a black woman's epiphany at the time we were sharing that coat. So that's my Wisconsin story. And it's crazy, when I tell it in Wisconsin, I say Janesville, a lot of black people go, uh-huh. <laughs> so y'all know something about that city I didn't know before I got there. So when I first came into the movement, I did women's rights work. My first movement job was at the D.C. Rape Crisis Center, where I was the third executive director. So for a number of years, I worked in the women's rights movement. When I took the job at the Center for Democratic Renewal, I moved from women's rights to civil rights, which was kind of a backwards way for a black woman to do it, because usually we move from civil rights to women's rights. Well, of course, I've always been bass backwards. <laughs> then through my contact with Reverend Vivian, I moved from civil rights to human rights. And so that's been my own ideological journey. And I want to talk about what that journey has taught me and share it with y'all. Now, why would I move from civil rights to human rights is the question. When I was doing this deprogramming work. One of the people that I assisted is a man named Floyd Cochran. 
Floyd Cochran, and you can Google him, uh, try Los Angeles Times if you care. Floyd Cochran, Los Angeles Times. Anyway, he was the national spokesman for the Aryan nations. And when Floyd's second child was born with a cleft palate, his Aryan brothers told him that his child was a genetic defect who needed to be put to death. And all of a sudden, Floyd figured out that these weren't the people he wanted to hang out with anymore. <laughs> he was a white man who grew up in upstate New York, didn't even meet his first African-American until he was 25 years old, but he managed to hate black people. But at 32, his second son was born. And so Floyd decided to leave the Aryan Nations, and he contacted Center for Democratic Renewal for help. He and I ended up on a speaking tour, and might I add, the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> you notice those kind of things are not on my bio. <laughs> I mean, it's just too hard to explain to the world Jerry Springer and still have any pretense to credibility. <laughs> But anyway, and Floyd had his own epiphany, and an epiphany is when you change your mind about something. You know, when all of a sudden this light bulb goes off, he said, oh, hell, that's what that is. That's an epiphany. And so he had his own epiphany because of his child. But what really turned him around was that in the early 1990s, Floyd had recruited this pair of kids in Allentown, Pennsylvania, to join the Aryan Nations. And one night, these kids came home and murdered their entire families. They were named the Freeman Brothers. You can Google that, Allentown, Pennsylvania, Freeman Brothers. And Floyd realized that he was personally responsible for turning two straight-A church-going kids into murderers through hatred. So that was part of his apology tour. He wanted to apologize for all the skinheads he had recruited. And so Floyd turns to me one day while we're on our tour, looking like an interracial couple. <laughs> There's a story in that, too, but I'm trying. I, I better keep on. <laughs> Anyway, Floyd asked me one day, he said, Loretta, you know, where's the movement I can join? And I said, oh, I don't know, Floyd. I said, maybe you can join the civil rights movement. He said, you think they're ready for an ex-Nazi? <laughs> okay. Uh, maybe not. And I know you can't join the women's movement because you're still sleeping around on your wife. And I don't think you're ready for the gay rights movement. I don't know, Floyd. So I took his question to Reverend Vivian, who always got me in trouble anyway. And Reverend Vivian surprised me when he responded. He said, well, you know, Loretta, Martin never meant to build a civil rights movement. Now, I need to deconstruct that sentence. First of all, Reverend Vivian, 
knew Dr. King well enough to call him Martin. <laughs> Where, to be polite, we've always been taught to say Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Civil Rights Leader, like it's all one name. <laughs> but then he said he didn't mean to build a civil rights movement. And at that point, I felt like the kid on what's happening. What you talking about? Because the only thing I know about Dr. King is that he was a civil rights leader. And Reverend Miriam went on to say, Martin meant to build a human rights movement. At that point, I felt like the stupidest person in the world. Because what are you saying in 1994? Why am I just now hearing this? And so he went to his shelf and he pulled down a copy of Dr. King's last Sunday sermon, March 31st, 1968. Google it. I love the fact that I can say Google it when I want to prove something. <laughs> like Google don't lie. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. March 31st, 1968. Dr. King said that we're in the midst of three revolutions around the world. The first one is a revolution in weaponry with our ability to destroy the earth many times over. He said the second revolution is technology with our ability to communicate worldwide. And I don't know what he would have thought about the World Wide Web with that kind of prophetic vision in 1968. But he said the most important revolution is the human rights revolution with the freedom explosion taking place around the world. A human rights revolution. He said America must join the human rights revolution. At that point, I said, wait a damn minute. How come everybody taught me that Dr. King had a dream, but ain't nobody tell me he had a plan? Because why don't we have that human rights revolution in America? Why is he seen as the civil rights leader and not the human rights leader that he was? So I'm going to get back to Dr. King's speech because I'm going to talk about what he meant by human rights. But before, I want to talk about what we're fighting against. Because I've already talked, I'm going to talk about what we're fighting for. We're fighting to build a human rights revolution in this country. We're fighting for human rights. But we first got to define what are we fighting against? Because we're talking about building a beloved community, but what kind of community do we have right now where children merely going to school are getting shot down? What are we dealing with now? I actually think that we are still living in the age of white supremacy. And I don't flinch from saying the word because I understand that white supremacy is not about a race of people. It's about a body of ideas. And you don't have to be white to believe those ideas. Think about Ben Carson. <laughs> Talking about no Muslim should ever be president. Assholes come in every color.
everybody has a has has an asshole, but not everybody asshole speaks. <laughs> but damn. I want to talk a lot about white supremacy because you have to understand that white supremacy is the ideology and white privilege is the practice. Just like pornography is the theory of misogyny and rape is its practice. So you have to understand the interaction of what we would call the dialectic between an ideology and its practice. Because not everybody who practices white privilege is going to consider themselves a white supremacist, no more than everybody who commits rape necessarily reads pornography. But they are influenced. There is a relationship between those things. And one of the problems we have as people of color in fighting white supremacy is that somehow we're supposed to believe that every outcome that affects our lives, that is, affect, that is structured by racism, is not the product of racism. I was sitting at a table, I don't know where she went, with the woman that's studying disparities in Dane County. Where are you? Yeah. Thank you who reminded me that it's much worse than you think. And yet it seems so inexplicable in this wonderful liberal county. And yet black folks are supposed to say, but it ain't racism. People are so nice. So we're going to talk about how white supremacy works in the context of nice because we're allowed to be optimistic about white supremacy, but we're not allowed to be naive. Because to be naive is to be dead when you're fighting such a deadly force. Because white supremacy is not limited to gutter epithets, you know, curses, the N-word. If every white supremacist used the N-word, we'd have no problem identifying them, would we? <laughs> Even when they code it in dog whistle style, like Ian Haney talked about, Lopez talked about last night. We have no problem identifying that. Most of us wouldn't anyway. Some people would rather not deconstruct the codes. But white supremacy is a totalizing system. It's become a sea in which every one of us swims. So we can't say that because we're not subscribers to white supremacy, we're not affected by white supremacy. Yeah. To do that is to be in denial. And I'm not talking about that river in Africa. It took a while, huh? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so hard. I cannot keep anything straight. That's, that's my problem. If I weren't doing political work, I'd probably be a stand-up comedian somewhere. Actually, a sit-down comedian, because I get tired of standing up. But you can see, I can make a career telling jokes. So let's talk about it. Let me talk about it.
talk about white supremacy and denial, something that recently happened to me. In 2011, I went down to Mississippi because on the Mississippi ballot was a, an initiative that tried to confer personhood status on fetuses, the people who have yet to be born, claiming that a fetus is a human being, therefore we should outlaw abortion in the Mississippi Constitution. So I went there to fight that. And one of the reasons that I went there to fight that is because you cannot liberate a fetus without enslaving women. It just don't work that way. I refuse to become a slave again because of your religious views. Your religion enslaved me. Why am I going to let it happen again with my permission? It ain't happening. So I go to Mississippi to fight this personhood initiative because it would not only outlaw abortion, but many forms of birth control. And it would just damage women again. All of a sudden, another bunch of white men telling women what they can't do with their bodies. Will they stop that? Whew. Anyway, when I got to Mississippi, what I found out was that also on the ballot was a voting rights initiative that basically said that you have to have special ID to prove your right to be eligible to vote in Mississippi. And I went, wait a moment. This is 2011 in Mississippi. How can Mississippi again be placing voting restrictions in the path of African Americans, young people, immigrants? I mean, does Mississippi ever learn? I guess I wasn't so surprised that Mississippi was trying to roll back voting rights. The whole South is trying to do that. Many states are trying to do it. I bet you it's happening in Wisconsin. Y'all got Scott Walker. <laughs> because Wisconsin has been Dixie-fied. But what surprised me was that the groups that I had gone to Mississippi to work with in the women's movement we're committed to fighting the personhood amendment, but not the voting rights amendment. And I was like, excuse me? Don't y'all think denying people the right to vote is as important as denying people the right to control their bodies? And they said, well, we want to sit down here to work on voting rights. If, if the NAACP care about voting rights, let them work on it. And I said, oh, my God, I'm watching feminism in the service of white supremacy. And these are my problematic allies that I have to work with. So when I talk about the promiscuity of white supremacy, it will sleep with everybody in the furtherance of its goals. The feminist movement, that should know better. That should know about the concept of intersectionality. Could not intersect voting rights 
and women's rights, even though black women were saying, what the I'm telling you, it is so hard. It is so hard to do this work and remain upbeat and optimistic and fun. <laughs> Which, as you can see, I've done. So ask me in the Q&A how I do that. So let's talk about white supremacy as an ideology. White supremacy, first of all, rests upon the myth of blood purity that there are pure human beings out here, pure white folks versus unpure everybody else. Now, I estimate that possibly as many as 1% of the white folks in America of a pure Anglo-Saxon descent. That means 99% of y'all are mongrels. <laughs> Mixed up with everybody. And it's so amazing when y'all get those DNA tests and you're like, 14% sub-Saharan Africa? That's what happened to a Klan leader. <laughs> he had his DNA tested. It turns out that he was 14% African. Oh, my boy, lost it. He lost it. Because, you know, we got that one drop rule in America. One drop of black blood and you are negrophobe every sense. So this myth of blood purity means that they have to do fierce policing of racial boundaries. You know, which is why they have still existing laws and cultural mores against interracial dating, interracial marriages. You know, even to talking about, you know, gay marriage and trans, you know, tra being transphobic. It's all caught up in the policing of alleged white racial boundaries. Because the whole white race was created, by the way. It didn't exist until slavery. They had to create white people to explain why they enslaved black people. You know? Read your history. I ain't got that time to give you that history right now. <laughs> but this book, there's a wonderful book by uh, Noel Ignatieff called The Invention of the White Race that I'd really recommend that you read, maybe out there on the books being sold. The other thing about white supremacy as an ideology is that it truly polices who can be a citizen in this country. And so you've got different kinds of birther movements. One birther movement claims that President Obama is not a U.S. citizen because he was born in that foreign country called Hawaii. And because his father was African, obviously he's not an American. Yeah. But then you've got this other birth of movement saying that the children of immigrants are not U.S. citizens, even though they were born in the United States because their parents were not citizens. And you're like, okay. So you're trying to redefine who is a citizen based on your opinion about their parents, not the geography of where they're born, which the 14th Amendment basically says, if you're born in the United States, you're a U.S. citizen. They did that after the Civil War. 
Then the other aspect of white supremacy, because a lot of people think white supremacy is only about race. It's about maintaining the patriarchy. Definitely policing the behavior of white women. You know, I maintain that if they could figure out a way to make abortion and birth control only available to women of color, they would send limousines to take us to the clinics. Because all of these restrictions on abortion and birth control and sex education are about compelling young white children to have more babies. Because they're afraid of the demographics. Fewer white babies are being born, they believe, and more babies of color are replacing the native stock. I don't know how the hell they call themselves the native stock. Should I also say that white supremacy is basically fucking outrageous? (laughs) They'll make up any myth. And homophobia and transphobia is caught up in that, the policing of the behavior of white people. And then, finally, it's about denial. Because they don't understand and refuse to acknowledge that racism is about the manipulation of power animated by prejudice. You can't be racist if you don't have the power to implement your prejudices. So this whole myth of reverse racism, the legend, black people don't like white people. Well, hell, I don't like stupid people, but I don't have the power to isolate them to a stupid people island. I don't have the power to take mean people out of society. Prejudice plus power equals racism. It's not enough just to be prejudiced or dislike somebody. You got to have the power to make them have negative consequences systemically. So the problem we have with Looking at white supremacy and then its stepchild, white privilege, is that when we say white privilege, many white people hear privilege whites. And they deny that white privilege affects them because something in their lives sucks. (laughs) You know? I'm not part of the 1%, so I can't have white privilege. That's only for the 1%. I'm a woman. I can't have white privilege because I don't have gender privilege. I'm a trans man, so I can't have white privilege. Do you know how hard transitioning is? I'm a Buddhist. So I can't have white privilege. I'm not a Christian. I mean, on and on and on. And when we try to talk about white privilege, what we experience is a lot of forms of deflection. Where we say, we want to talk about white privilege and white, and white supremacy. And they say, yeah, yeah, but I want to talk about indigenous sovereignty. But you ain't an Indian. Yeah, but I want to talk about it. 
because it's so uncomfortable to own our privileges. And we all have privileges. I'm not just talking about white privilege. We all have some form of privilege that we have to be responsible about. You know, I had the privilege of coming from an intact two-parent family. Not everybody enjoyed that. You know, I know that's a privilege. I had the privilege of knowing my parents who didn't have a college education were determined to send their eight kids to college. That was a privilege. I've met many people whose parents didn't even know how to send a child to college. You know? So I understand about privilege and ownership of them. But white privilege is one of those things that defends itself by repeatedly using victim strategies to stay in power. Basically, as Ian Haney said, Ian Haney Lopez, I keep wanting to say just his first two names, by manipulating white anger. And they do it so successfully that most beneficiaries of white privilege don't even realize that they are benefiting. And that's herein is our struggle. It starts off with the ideas of the far right that start that give us the ideology of white supremacy. When I talk about the far right, I'm meaning groups like the Ku Klux Klan, the militia, the Tea Party. These are organized white supremacist groups. They give us the ideas. But these ideas migrate into the hands of the religious right, who wrap a moral justification around the ideas. So suddenly, the white supremacists say that, oh, let's say, poor people are drained on the hardworking white Americans. And poor people, you can read, as black and brown people, and indigenous, of course. So they're draining, and they, they, they're taking away the rights of the white man in America. Then the religious right takes that same idea and says, and the reason they do it is because they're immoral. They don't understand the, the, the saving grace of hard work, of taking care of themselves and their family and personal responsibility. And then the next time you see these ideas, they're being massaged by the ultra-conservative movement, represented by institutions like the Heritage Foundation, who then say, and by the way, we can't even economically afford to take care of poor people, because we got this federal deficit to worry about. And they're not contributing anything to the economy anyway. They're just leeches, moochers people looking for a handout. So let's deconstruct welfare while we're at it. And then by the time it gets to the traditional bigots, they're the ones working at the SSI offices, denying people based on prejudices, on perceptions that they're lazy, that they don't want to work, that they don't deserve unemployment, that they don't deserve free meals at schools, etc. Etc., etc. So you see how this migration moves the ideas of the far right into mainstream public policy so that people supporting those ideas don't even have any idea where those ideas originated from. That's how you end up being 
a elegant white supremacist. <laughs> and so what we end up with is white supremacy framed as individual instances of inappropriate behavior, not a totalizing system of ideas put into practice. And so every time we hear another black person has been killed from Trayvon Martin to Sandra Bland, somebody says, oh, it's just those crazy one person, that one cop who got out of control, George Zimmerman who just lost his temper, you know. And so we individualize the consequences of a total system. As if we don't all participate in keeping the system intact. Like I said, we, we insist on either being naive or in denial. And then, of course, we've got highly educated white men on Fox News or like Pat Buchanan stoking the fires, stoking the rage. I tried to watch Bill O'Reilly last night and his reaction to the Oregon shooting and my stomach started turning. I was like, I just can't do it. Even as a research project, I just don't have the stomach to watch this asshole right now. <laughs> Self-justify the murder of children to support his white supremacist ideology. I mean, at some point, I... There's reasons I don't own a gun. Because I know what going boastful could feel like. You know? I choose not to have the ability to carry out my rage. So white supremacy is not based on ignorance, but anger. Anger at black people, queer people, women, Immigrants, trans people, non-Christians, anybody seen as too uppity. So that now, what we clearly see through the Black Lives Matter movement is that disobedience to white authority equals death. That's all it takes. I said, turn your music down. I'll shoot you. Ain't that what happened to Jordan Davis? I said, don't play with those toys in the park or I'll shoot you. That's what happened to Tamir Rice. I said, don't sell those cigarettes on the corner. I, I will choke you. And on and on and on. Simple disobedience to perceived white power is a death sentence in our society. And so we have to teach our children how to step and fetch it. To survive? What the hell is that? So I want to talk about how white supremacy hurts white people. And then I want to close and talk about building that beloved community through human rights. I've got a little bit of time left, so let me use it wisely. First of all, white supremacy makes white people afraid to talk about it. For fear of messing up. For fear of saying the wrong things for fear of being called out if they don't get it perfectly right. So, how in the world are we going to build a movement against white supremacy without white people? I don't know how that's going to happen. 
The same way we needed white people to deconstruct Jim Crow, we need white people to deconstruct white supremacy again. So you have to stand up, and you have to take those risks. You know, if Viola Luzon could give her life, you can at least give your voice. I believe that. And it makes people resent others. I find it just amazing, because I study white supremacists as a movement and individually. And I'm always amazed how many male leaders of the white supremacist movement are obsessed with black pornography. I'm like, <laughs> what the hell is going on in your head? I don't get it. I don't get it. Just like Glenn Miller, the guy that was accused of killing those three people at the Jewish daycare center. He was arrested having sex with a black sex, male sex worker. Ow. Some minds I don't want to know. And white supremacy make white people feel stupid. And then when they try to call attention to white supremacy, then it makes them feel isolated from their own families. Like they just dropped the fart bomb in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> that ain't helpful. At least they don't think so. I just want to keep the peace, even though Uncle William keeps saying the N-word or the F-word. You know, it makes them feel that there's nothing they can do to change what is going on. And so it makes white people repeat myths about the alleged laziness of people of color, the injury to white people that racial justice and human rights causes. But the thing that Ian Haney Lopez pointed out so well yesterday was the way that white supremacy keeps the 99% divided so that we can't even pursue economic justice together. You know, so we are all watching the deconstruction of the middle class. And yet the focus is on punishing the people with the least, not the people with the most. What is wrong with that picture? Let's be clear. The middle class is being destroyed because of the way our current kind of capitalism is working. They call it neoliberalism. They've outsourced all the industrial jobs to other countries. They've moved them to other countries. So if you no longer have the jobs in America, you no longer need the laborers of America. And if you no longer need the laborers of America, then you no longer need to support the laborers of America. So then you do away with the educational system. Because who needs an educated, unemployed workforce? You do away with social supports like Social Security and unemployment. You attack the health care system. You attack the environment. All the things that were necessary to support an industrialized workforce are no longer there because the wealth creation strategy is through financial instruments. 
not industrial production. And the few industrial jobs still left in America are being performed in prisons by using prisoners to work for 14 cents an hour where the jobs outside used to pay $20 an hour. And so we can't get this analysis talked about in the national media as they talk about why Donald Trump is winning. Because he's representing the 1% and their manipulation of the 99%. I also think white supremacy hates white people because they miss the rich diversity of leadership that is available. That it normalizes itself. It normalizes all kinds of violence. So that we're supposed to take for granted school shootings. It's just one of the inevitable consequences of a free society. Well, hell, I don't feel that free if I need to walk around with a gun to protect myself or live behind 20-foot walls to feel safe at home. I have to imprison myself from everybody else, and that's supposed to be freedom? I don't define it that way. It affirms authoritarianism, top-down bosses telling us what to do. One thing that a woman pointed out to me is that living in a white supremacist world, whether you're conscious of it or not, destroys your inner peace. It makes you feel always on edge, like, wow, no place is safe. I'm never going to be safe. So that's why we inappropriately look for safe space in things like social justice movements, like fighting oppression is supposed to be safe. Being oppressed, we know that ain't safe, but if I'm fighting it, I want to feel like I'm in a womb and you ain't going to say nothing that's going to hurt my feelings. And it becomes intergenerational. So that young white kids down south are reappropriating and redisplaying the Confederate flag as a defiant act, even though it's been shown, clearly shown to be used in the service of murdering people, both historically and today. And they say, it's not racist, it's just tradition. Yes, it is tradition to be a white supremacist. That's what is tr the tradition it displays. And, of course, it distorts history, deprives us of the knowledge of facts. It hardens masculine feminine roles. It creates and recreates the failures of people of color. Now, let me talk about that because I don't think people of color are intentionally designed to fail. But I do think that I've worked at many institutions where they hire the one token person of color fail to give them the support they need to be successful, and then blame them for their failure to support them. I have another speech on that, but I won't, I won't go there anymore. <laughs> I don't have the time, honey. <laughs> Call me back. Anyway, and mostly it limits whites of people to a very limited role of a savior of people of color or an ally of people of color. And I have to honestly say, I don't want you to be my savior or my ally. I prefer for you to be my co-conspirator because we have a mutual commitment to
to deconstructing white supremacy. It ain't just about me. It's about you and your family, too. You know? So, what to do? This is where I'm going to switch to the human rights framework. I talked about Dr. King saying that we need to build the human rights movement, but you can't build the human rights movement if you don't know what human rights are. Most of us think of human rights as the tortured prisoner overseas somewhere, right? You know, that's who comes to mind when we think about human rights. But, in fact, human rights are our deal with our own government. It is the commitments we expect our governments to make to us so that we can live a life of human dignity. When Franklin Roosevelt defined the four freedoms during World War II, I know this is old history for most of y'all, he talked about the four freedoms as, what is it, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from fear, and freedom from want. Those got turned into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. And in it, they define categories of human rights protections into which we are all entitled. The first category is civil rights. Our right to be treated as an equal to anybody else in society. There are new civil rights movements like the gay rights movement, the disability rights movement. These are all civil rights movements. The second category is called political human rights. That's our right to practice things like freedom of speech, the right to vote, though we've recently learned that we don't have the right to have our votes counted. Oops. And we're watching the attacks on voting rights. And then their third category is called economic human rights. Our right to have the economy managed in such a way that it meets the needs of people, something that the 99% do not enjoy, as the Occupy movement named, that the economy is being managed in such a way that it only meets the needs of the 1%, and the rest of us are getting screwed without a kiss. The fourth category is called social human rights, and that's the right to have our human needs met. And our human needs are things like our need for food, clothing, health care, education, some basic little things like that. And we've learned that since education is a human right, our educational system has a financial interest in not teaching us what our human rights are, because then how could they charge us thousands of dollars for an education that should be free? So don't be surprised that you don't, that I'm telling you about your human rights for the first time. Because if you knew education was a human right, you'd be like, I ain't paying you $100,000 for that. Why are the banks getting rich off of me getting educated? What's up with that deal? And the beauty of social human rights is that the way it's explained, every human being has the same human rights, but because of our own intersectional identities, 
we all need something different to protect our human rights. You know, um, think of it this way. Every child has a human right to an education, right? But would you acknowledge that a blind child might need her books in Braille? She doesn't have special human rights. She has special human needs that her intersectional identity calls attention to. And so we have to pay attention to those differences in order to achieve the same human rights. Differences matter. And you pay attention to whether or not she's disabled, whether or not she's disadvantaged because of race, gender, ability, sexual orientation, religion, all of these things in order to get her to the same human rights that other children enjoy. You can figure out how that works. I love the way human rights accounts for differences without trying to erase them. And it goes right in the face of this bullshit called colorblindness. I keep saying I'm going to keep it clean and then I forget. I hope you've heard these words before, kids. <laughs> if you're not, go ask your mama what they mean. And then they'll write the YWCA and say, what did you take my child to? <laughs> and then we'll have a whole other conversation. And y'all can blame it on me, why? They said, we bought this speaker in and we didn't know what she was going to say. <laughs> the fifth category is called cultural human rights. That's the right to practice the culture of our choice, to speak the language of our choice. So if English is not your first language, you have a cultural human right to speak the language of your choice, to get served in the language of your choice. That's important. That is your human right. And freedom of religion is a human right. I have the freedom to practice whatever religion I want to. I don't have to be a Presbyterian just because you say you want which is very important, but even more important, cultural human rights mean freedom from religion is a human right. I have the human right to not have your religion imposed upon my body, because I don't share your religion. And you're a human rights violator by making me live by your limited view of what religious freedom means. And one of the things people try to do who are religious is misuse the human rights framework by saying that, well, it applies to the preborn, the unborn, you know, the people who aren't even here yet. And I like to call attention to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. What did that say? Five minutes? Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't have my glasses on, so I just saw you holding it up. Um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was written in 1948, long before the debates on abortion came up, even before birth control was legalized in the United States in 1948, because birth control wasn't illegalized until the 1970s. So anyway, the opening line of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights says, all human beings are born equal in rights and dignity. Now, what does that mean? That means you have to be here to claim the damn rights. 
You can't just be a twinkle in daddy's eye. A hope of a future sperm. You can't even be a fetus, a zygote, or whatever. You have to have been born to claim the human rights. And you cannot violate the human rights of people who are already here in favor of the rights of people who ain't even got here yet. And so people who are trying to claim that human rights framing for the preborn are taking advantage of our ignorance of the human rights framework. And there's no reason for us to stay that ignorant. The sixth category is called environmental human rights, the right to a clean environment, clean water, non-genetically modified food, clean air, the right not to have neighborhoods built on toxic dumps. The seventh category are called developmental human rights. Now, these are human rights demanded by the developing world, the right to control their own natural resources is the human right that they're demanding. Which sounds a bit amorphous, a bit vague, but think about it. We invaded Iraq because we could not explain how our oil got under their sand. <laughs> Did God make a geological boo-boo that our military had to correct? Notice. We topple governments that have oil, support suppressive governments that will sell us oil, and appropriate every natural resource around the world. Matter of fact, some of us don't feel that Africa and Asia are developing continents and countries. We see them as never to be developed continents and countries, because if those people were allowed to develop, they would claim and control their own natural resources. And we can't have that. So we have a whole environmental movement justify the continuing underdevelopment of those countries. Saying, well, if they develop like us, they'll be wanting two cars, and that'll destroy the environment. Environmentalism in the service of white supremacy. And the eighth category is my favorite sexual human rights, the right to determine if and when you'll have sex, with whom, under what condition, uh, the right to sexual pleasure is a human right, which is kind of fun because you get to tell your partner, uh, you're not doing it right, you're a human rights violator. <laughs> Move over, or I'll report you to the United Nations. these human rights are very important. But I wanted to point out that those are just the eight categories that we claim now. I believe new categories will emerge. I think the ninth category of human rights is going to be called digital rights. The right to digital technology. Because if you're not connected to the internet, you're not going to be seen as human for very long. And so new categories emerge as new social movements demand them. And so when I talk about building the beloved community through human rights, I want to talk about this is what we're building towards, a community where every human being has their human rights protected, respected, and defended. 
and that we understand our, I say we understand our mutual interdependence upon each other the fact that we have to have a caring community that we have to all be included in the human rights movement like I want to be in the feminist wing of the human rights movement working with the environmental justice wing of the human rights movement, working with the restorative justice wing of the human rights movement. On and on and on. And so in closing, I want to close with a Walt Whitman poem. And you think, well, that's a strange guy to quote. But, you know, like I said, the beauty of learning is that you have to keep your heart and your mind open to learning from anywhere. I saw this quote and I thought it was so appropriate for y'all. He says, You shall not look through my eyes either, nor take things from me. You shall listen to all sides and filter them from yourself. So I'm not preaching at you for what you must believe. I'm offering you an alternative to white supremacy, which is human rights. You can choose not to believe it or not. But I do know that in my 45 years of being a human rights activist, that activism for me is the art of making my life matter. And I invite y'all to join me on that journey. Thank you.